0: The background, the traditional way of approaching people with mental disorder, which you know by today's standards was really deplorable. Uh, people with mental illness were placed in almshouses and jails, sometimes towns around Connecticut and everywhere else in America would, would bid the care out to the lowest bidder, who might put up a little cage along the side of the barn and keep somebody uh, you know that way in france a physician by the name of philippe pinel was instrumental in this movement to remove chains from the people with mental disorder and to treat mental disorder as an illness i mean what a change from treating it as possession by the devil or you know a sort of inherent evil
1: In recognition of the 200th anniversary of Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living this year, Hartford HealthCare has partnered with the Connecticut Historical Society to present Common Struggle Individual Experience, an exhibition about mental health. This special podcast series will take us through the history of mental health treatment in Connecticut and behind the scenes of the IOL, the first psychiatric hospital in the history of Connecticut and the third in the nation. The journey of mental health care through the 19th and 20th century is a fascinating one. The IOL played a significant role in fundamentally changing approaches to mental health, blazing a trail of moral, ethical treatment for others to follow. In episode two, Hartford HealthCare's Steve Coates talks to Dr. Hank Schwartz, physician and chief emeritus at the Institute of Living. They take us back to the state of mental health in 1822 a time when those with mental illness were treated like prisoners or worse. The field was on the cusp of much needed change, which began in Europe. That change would soon reach the American shores and would be spearheaded by Eli Todd, a physician in Farmington, Connecticut, and who served as the first director of the Institute of Living. The tides of change in the field of mental health from then until now are remarkable. Here's Steve Coates.
2: Dr. Schwartz, thanks for being here today. 200 years for the Institute of Living. What a milestone uh, for the institution. And looking back over those 200 years and the formation of the IOL, what was the climate like for mental health care, for behavioral health care, back in 1822?
0: Go back to 1822. There really are two forces going on at the same time that are almost in a contradiction to each other. One was the background, the, the traditional way of approaching people with mental disorder, which you know by today's standards was really deplorable. Uh, people with mental illness were placed in almshouses and jails, sometimes towns around Connecticut and everywhere, everywhere else in America would, would bid the care out to the, the lowest bidder who might put up a little cage along the side of the barn and and keep somebody um, that way. That was the the background. But at the same time, two things were happening. One was that it was the time of what's called the Second Great Awakening in America, which is it was um, a kind of religiously infused time of good public works, uh, It was the the time when the uh, progenitor of the Hartford Asylum for the Deaf was created. Uh, All kinds of other institutions uh, were created, the um, Athenaeum as a museum. So, um, you know, people were invigorated with the notion of public works for the public good. And at the same time, there was a change in the philosophy of uh, attitude towards and philosophy of treatment um, about people with mental illness. This change originated in Europe. It was called moral treatment. It came to us really from two places in in Europe, the York retreat in York, England, which took the, the position that individuals with mental disorder really needed to be treated Uh, with kindness um, and attention to their psychological and spiritual uh, issues. Also in France, um, a physician by the name of Philippe Pinel was instrumental in this movement to remove chains from the people with mental disorder and to treat mental disorder as an illness. I mean, what a change from treating it as possession by the devil or you know a sort of inherent evil so the philosophy of moral treatment crossed a pond to america uh, and here uh, a number of people took it up but one of the really primary people in america was eli todd who was a physician in farmington had uh, his own experience with mental illness his sister and his father he brought around a, a group of like-minded physicians who were very interested in um, establishing a, a more you know, appropriate, humane way to address mental illness. And as part of that, developed a commitment to creating an asylum.
2: Was there a science behind any of this or was it just these patients aren't well, we need a place to put them?
0: I don't think you'd call it uh, necessarily the result of science. I think you would call it almost early or pre-science observation by physicians that people with mental illness did appear to be ill, not disordered in some you know, demonic way. Um, and so, uh, you know, those observations really contributed to what was primarily a philosophic change, a change in attitude. Um, and uh, that's what we saw with the establishment of moral treatment at places like the Hartford Retreat for the Insane.
2: So looking back to the 19th century and even into the turn of the 20th century, were there treatments that were effective like we have today, or was this just a place where we were putting patients?
0: Well, I'll answer that in just a moment, but let me say, before we get to the 1860s or whatever, the, the science did begin in roughly the 1840s, the third superintendent of the Hartford Retreat was a doctor by the name of uh, Aramiah Brigham, and he was um, a, a, an early neuroscientist. He would follow the course of, of patients' illness, and when the patient died, he would do postmortem examinations of the brain, trying to correlate abnormalities of the brain with the history of the patient's illness. This really is a part of of scientific, an example of scientific uh, investigation. In fact, what he was doing then, we are still doing today, but with contemporary methods. So we are examining patients with functional magnetic resonance imaging scanners, the kinds of MRI scanners you go under if you get a hit on the brain or, or whatever, and, and, and it needs to be evaluated or have a stroke. Um, so we're, we're still trying to do something that Brigham started in the 1840s, which is to, to correlate brain with mind and behavior. In terms of treatments, one of the huge advances was the notion that mental disorder is an illness. And if it's an illness, it needs to be treated like other physical illnesses. Now, in the very earliest days of the Institute, uh, of the Hartford Retreat, that was before it was renamed as the Institute, that medical treatment might be bloodletting. Now, that seems primitive. How could that be in advance? But it was in advance to think that if we were using bloodletting to treat pneumonia, because pneumonia was a real illness, that we would use the same sort of thing um, to treat mental illness. There were other other, um, things that, you know, medications, Uh, for instance, there were opioids in in those days. Um, Morphine and opium tinctures and other uh, like substances were used to calm patients. Patients were given emetics, um, and uh, that was felt to be uh, helpful. Modern psychopharmacology didn't really start until the 1950s, 1960s.
2: Maybe I'm skipping a time period here, but I've heard so much about what has been called the golden age, the golden era of the IOL, maybe the 40s and 50s when the rich and famous would come here to be treated, movie stars would come here uh, for a retreat. Is, is there truth to that?
0: So the superintendent, uh, the, the most famous superintendent of that time uh, was a man by the name of Charles Burlingame. Um, and he famously said that he thought the institute should be part hospital, part university, and part country club. Yeah. And we he went ahead, you know, creating just that kind of place. Mm-hmm. And um, it became uh, the place that many people would come from across the country uh, with alcohol issues to, uh, to dry out. And some came with uh, more traditional, very serious mental illnesses. Others came for, quote, the rest cure. Now, now Burlingham game, in addition to wanting to create this hospital university country club, also believed that physicians should really be familiar with the stethoscope. In other words, that, you know, we needed to be a place that, also provided the very best medical treatment and the best psychiatric care uh, that was available. But we certainly had a reputation that was uh, in a country club fashion. We had an indoor pool and an outdoor pool and tennis courts and a golf course and a squash court. People could come and have their own cottage and bring a servant um, with them. Of course, that was expensive. Um, They were also much less expensive accommodations for people who who didn't have that kind of money or had more traditional um, mental illness and needed a very different kind of care
2: so what causes that type of shift in changing it from this long-term you know facility where the rich and famous would go in that golden age that we're talking about is it more about the insurance companies wanting some accountability for that length of stay well there
0: were there were a few steps um, to that. Um, one was the introduction of medications that actually worked specifically for psychiatric um, conditions. Lithium, for instance, for bipolar disorder, Thorazine and Haldol for psychotic um, conditions, um, Elevil and other antidepressants. You know, they, they created a huge revolution all of a sudden. Um, people could be treated effectively in shorter periods of time. And so um, the draw uh, began to shift towards a more traditional kind of psychiatric treatment of psychiatric um, disorder. Then there was the the deinstitutionalization era um, in which the state hospitals basically started going out of business in part because of the promise of psychopharmacology. People didn't have to stay in hospitals um, for years, uh, in part because governments really wanted to shift away from funding um, long-term care in in state hospitals. But the big change for an organization like the Institute of Living was the managed care movement. So um, managed care, which was the decision by the insurance industry, that they would just no longer write blank checks for patients to stay in hospitals as long as doctors said they needed to be there. Instead, they would require evidence that uh, the patient really needed to be in a hospital at all. And then every week or so, uh, further evidence that the hospitalization needed to continue. The the managed care movement uh, cut the heart out of the institute of living in 1989 when i arrived at the institute of living the average length of stay was over 60 days and many patients stayed for 120 days a few years before that the average length of stay was was over a year the institute of living in 1989 when i arrived had 400 uh, i'm sorry not in 1989 in the late 1980s at 400 beds. By the time I arrived in 1989, it was reduced to 200 beds. And then through nine separate downsizings to about 120 beds. And the average length of stay was reduced to 12 days.
2: So five years after you arrive, the IOL merges, becomes part of Hartford Hospital, which becomes part of Hartford Healthcare. I think some of the reasons obviously, for financial reasons, but it seemed logical because of the proximity to the campus and perhaps maybe sharing medical staff. Take us through that process.
0: It was a a bit of a difficult time, but uh, the IOL had so many programs um, of excellence that, frankly, it worked very well. In the long term, the merger with Hartford Hospital provided a platform from which the iol could again become nationally prominent in the delivery of uh, psychiatric services and after a couple of years of adjustment and scrambling to to make things work we were able to begin the development of a whole group of new contemporary programs a major research center um, invigorate our training programs um, and ultimately you know as as i said that move from a solid foundation to the organization we are today.
2: In the context of working in this larger health system, what has made the IOL so successful in addressing behavioral health concerns and continuing to establish itself as a premier uh, destination for behavioral health? Well, first
0: of all, here here at home, as you know, the IOL is has become the flagship um, service within the larger behavioral health network, which um, consists of the psychiatry departments uh, and a number of hospitals and ambulatory programs, really, that are across, across the state. So we're, we're part of a much larger system. We're opening a new residency program. The system, Hartford HealthCare, is um, uh, based at St. At Vincent's. We're growing our research programs We've developed the match programs for medication-assisted substance abuse treatment um, throughout the state. So, you know, we're growing and we're trying to meet, you know, the needs uh, of the community. But as is obvious right now, the needs of the community have taken a huge, huge leap um, in demand, um, really, um, with the pandemic which isn't to say that the the demand wasn't growing before the pandemic. It was. And the mental health system in America is still, you know, disorganized, um, you know, in in many ways. Uh, The pressure now to meet many of the the demands, you know, is just growing more and more intense. I do think that as part of a larger system, the Hartford HealthCare's behavioral health network, we're better positioned to... um, be more flexible, meet the demand with services where they're needed and when they are needed, but I don't want to underplay uh, the challenges of meeting the current, really the call it, mental health crisis that we're in right now it's a, as a result of the opioid crisis, rising rates of suicide, the, hugely rising rates of suicide, rising rates of depression and anxiety that have been kind of going through the roof uh, with the pandemic.
2: As we come to a close here, I'll ask the resident historian of the Institute of Living, what is it about the IOL that makes it such a special place in attracting physicians and attracting colleagues? What is it?
0: I'd say there's a couple of reasons. One, unlike many other organizations, the IOL has stayed committed to the many parts of psychiatric care. So there are some organizations that just are are totally biologically based into into medications. There are others that are more traditional that have stayed closer to the psychotherapy realm. There are some that are research institutions and others that are just clearly clinical. We keep our fingers in all of those pots very significantly. We have outstanding research programs that feed what we do clinically. We have terrific training programs in all of the disciplines uh, uh, that that provide uh, mental health services, and I think we have a, a wonderful, you know, clinical program. The people who come here are people who want to teach and want to provide care. They want to be in an intellectual atmosphere that is contemporary and and at the cutting edge, uh, and that enables us to, you know, draw leadership and staff that are really first rate. The second thing I would say is that the leadership of Hartford HealthCare has an understanding of the relationship of mental illness to overall health care. And so they don't consider psychiatric services, mental health services to be a stepchild. They consider it to be you know, a vital component of, of what we all need uh, to move forward in good health. And, you know, that's a critical support.
2: Doctor, thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Steve.
1: Thank you, Steve Coates and Dr. Schwartz. Check the links in this episode's notes to listen to episode one featuring the Connecticut Historical Society's Director of Exhibitions, Ben Gammel, and research historian, Karen Lee Miller. They describe the Common Struggle exhibit, which is now open at the Connecticut Historical Society. Be sure to follow Hartford HealthCare's podcast, where more episodes focusing on the IOL's history, present, and future will publish throughout the year. Just search Hartford HealthCare on your favorite podcast platform. For Hartford HealthCare, I'm Anne-Ronda Pierre. Thanks for listening.